tap into your most original thinking, organize your ideas, and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. He's authored books on pharmaceuticals, Japanese art, Freemasonry. He's a neuroscientist. He's a cellist. He's a licensed cook from the school of Cordon Bleu. Today, we're stamping our creative passports in Tokyo, Japan, and we're talking with Chris Earnshaw. Dr. Earnshaw, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Dr. Earnshaw has such a diverse creative portfolio of pursuits. We were laughing just before I hit the record button. We don't know, often know where to start <laughs> with folks <laughs> right. like Chris. What, what do you think drives this diverse creative interest? Yes, I think it's curiosity. That is probably the driving force. There are just so many interesting things that I want to know about and to understand. I'm not content with some of the answers that people give me, and uh, I want to know for myself. And that goes from things like cooking to religion to anything, how, how things work. I want to be able to understand them for myself rather than be given a package from somebody else. And so now you're reinventing yourself as an author. This yes. is after many years in business, your own entrepreneurial pursuits, consulting. Why did you decide now is the time to really concentrate on writing? Because I retired about eight years ago and I actually have the time to write. Um, writing is quite an intense business. I, don't, I wouldn't want to call it, I call it a pursuit. I don't like to think of it as a business for making money. Before, when I was in full-time in business, I was able to write a few books, but they took quite a long time because I wasn't able to allocate the time to it. And now that I have the time, but then other things fill up my life. So I really have to organize my life and block out things on my calendar so I have time to write. Well, what's on your desktop right now? What are you working on these days? Um, yes. So my recent adventure, while I was at work, I completed four small projects. I wrote a book about Japanese art. I wrote an autobiography. I wrote a book about the Japanese pharmaceutical industry. It was actually more a tariff, a book about all the different drugs that are available. But it's the first one in English. And also I um, created a tarot system, a new tarot card. It's called the Tarot of the Revelation. It's also avail available in Japanese. And so while I was working, I was able to put these, get these projects done, mainly weekends and uh, stealing time in, in coffee shops. But more recently, I've just completed a quadrilogy. I think that's what comes after trilogy. But anyway, <laughs> a book of four to do with Freemasonry. It's called Freemasonry Initiation by Light. And I've re-examined the roots, the historical roots of Freemasonry. I believe it's actually based on Chinese Taoism. And so this is such a, a tangent for people who are Freemasons. You're probably aware that Freemasonry is a very English institution. It was vent, invented in London uh, in 1717. Uh, so we've just celebrated 300 years as the world's oldest fraternity. And so the institution is a little bit stodgy, a little bit rigid. And so when I 
uh, tell people I believe Freemasonry is based on Chinese Taoism, it, it, it kind of causes it's like throwing stones into a pool. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's quite provocative. Yes, I mean, it, and, yeah. and was your thought that you wanted to dig into the roots of Freemasonry, or was it almost, I'll call it a Venn diagram mindset that you said, wow, look at the overlap or look at the commonalities <laughs> between the right. two. What, what prompted your research in that direction? Yeah, it's actually an inspiration. My background in, was at university. I studied Japanese and Chinese, and that's why I live in Japan, I suppose. And uh, I was studying ancient Chinese literature, you know, uh, Confucius and Mencius and Lao Tzu. And so I particularly liked the works of Mencius. Mencius is very easy to read. And uh, his book's called Mencius. His name is Mencius. He wrote about how people should improve society and his ideas for statesmanship and things like that. Three years ago, four years ago now, I attended a lecture in Tokyo on Mencius, and the lecturer was a Chinese philosopher. And he invited me to go to Taipei in Taiwan to attend a Taoist initiation ceremony, which only happens once a year in English. Normally it's in Chinese. And when I went there, I recognized it as being exactly the same as Freemasonry. So Freemasonry has three rituals that you have to pass through before you can call yourself a Master Mason. And the first one is um, the transfer of light from the East, from, from the Master to the candidate. And this is exactly what is happening in Taoism. The head of the temple was bringing light to the new candidate to the, the temple, which was the it was just so exactly the same as Freemasonry. And when I looked at all the components, there was at least 10 things that, that were same. I just couldn't understand this. So how could it be? Because nobody believes that Freemasonry comes from China. But it seems that the, the Freemasons in 1717 actually stepped back a little bit. At the time in England, from about 1660 to about uh, 1780, that's 120 years, there was a boom in Chinese things. Mm. China just opened up to the West. Uh, we'd had silk brought in from via uh, Venice and the Silk Road had been brought into Europe. But other things had not really arrived. And the first thing that came was tea, Chinese tea. And tea shops started to proliferate in 1660. Then the East India Company, which was actually uh, originally starting, of course, trading with India. But then it, it stretched further because for several political reasons, it was very difficult to trade with China. But then trade opened up and then all sorts of things came in like silk, furniture, and then the aristocracy in England started to copy Chinese architectural things like the roofs and the gardens, Chinese gardens, and they collected Chinese uh, Ming ceramics. So now England's one of the best places in the world to find Ming China ware <laughs> because in China it's all gone, but we we really collected it in, in a serious way in England. Um, not only did things come in, but ideas also came in. Uh, in early China, in the Ming era China, from something like the 1450s onwards, the Jesuits had been a very strong power 
in China. They had opened up Christian churches. They had like 300 churches across China. They were also introducing Chinese ideas and books back to the West. So they translated Chinese documents into Latin. Hmm. And in the 1600s in Europe, everybody spoke Latin. I mean, it was kind of the linga franca. Even the aristocracy in England read and wrote and to some extent spoke, even though it's a dead language, but they spoke Latin. And so these ideas started to come in. Then in the Royal Society, which had been established in 1660, there was a move to see if that the Chinese philosophy couldn't be welded with Christianity mm-hmm. because Chinese philosophy was, seemed to be such a superior meritocracy that they wanted to see if the two couldn't be made into a single religion, which then would spread out across the world. Because, of course, we had a lot of issues with Protestantism and Catholicism at that time, including wars between the two religions in Europe. And so the Europeans said, you know, we should be able to find a unifying factor. And so we had this ideas of bringing Chinese philosophy into the country. So then the Freemasons, 1770, they reestablished their organization based on what we call operative masons, people who used to make churches and castles and these massive mansions that we have in, in England. So they used those, that structure to build this, what I believe to be a, a sort of Chinese philosophy, initiation and secret ritual. And so it doesn't seem out of place to me, but a lot of people <laughs> may, may not believe. Yeah. But that's kind of a long explanation. No, a beautiful background. And I can see where <laughs> that idea was inspired. So now as you're thinking about organizing this into a series of books, Mm. what was your approach? Uh, Did you have an outline in mind? Did you have the chapter, the structure, the flow? Or, you know, do you see it unfolding as this quadrilogy also unfolds? (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, I just had to get it down on paper. Mm -hmm. And so I used Microsoft Word, which I, I like. I think people misunderstand Microsoft Word and they think it's just a simple document writing system, but actually it can, it's really well structured. So I was able to make many files and I just put it all down in as much as I could. And then I restructured and moved things around to make it chronologically acceptable. And then I made a single book. And the book turned out to be about 600 pages of A4. And I showed it to a Masonic publisher. And they said, it's probably too difficult to make into a single book and actually make any money. Because books are priced at nowadays something like if you go over $35, people, you know, that's a kind of a limit. (laughs) They're willing to pay for a hard copy book. You know, say 40 and 50, people start to, to worry about their bank account. So uh, he suggested that I divide it into four books. Of course, Freemasonry's Ritual is three. And so then it was, I was able to cut it up, but that was actually more work because I had cross-referenced so many things in mm. chapter three to chapter five and five to six. So I had to undo all these, these cross-links and that took another six months, but it ended up as four books. And I'm actually Uh, happy because you don't have to buy the whole series you can get one to get a flavor what i'm talking about 
and it brings the price down to $22, which is much more acceptable. Yes. Well, we'll be sure to include a link to the books <laughs> in our show Thank notes you. so people can find them. So Chris, I'm also curious, you know, here's this creative, right-brained, wide-ranging <laughs> creative interest. Yes. And yet, when you look at your CV, mm. it's PhDs in neuroscience, CEOs of medical device and yes. healthcare companies. Mm. What people would say is more left-brained, scientific, yes. analytical. How did you see those two blending in a professional setting? Well, I don't really make a demarcation like left-right brain. Of course, uh, my background kind of requires me to look at the brain in that system, but uh, I like to see them because we have this uh, corpus callosum, which uh, connects the two sides. And I think it's, it's actually rather like the Chinese yin yang symbol mm. which you may be familiar mm -hmm. of you have these they look like two fishes one's black and one's white and they're connected but inside the black there's a, a little circle of white and inside the white there's a circle of black it's also been pr uh, proved by some research that was done on uh, einstein's brain that inside the logical side of the brain, there is an element of the intuitive and the imaginative. And then on the other side of the brain, there's a rational, the rational un understanding is, so they're kind of mixed up like that. I don't see it as a demarcation. Also, something happened to me, and I think this is quite a, an important milestone in my life, I was very ill in 1993. I was hospitalized for three months with a, a form of asthma. I started to have adult onset asthma when in my 40s. And this really changed my life because I'd been very active. I sail. I do a lot of active sports. And uh, suddenly I couldn't. I couldn't. I had sometimes difficulty walking upstairs. So I was hospitalized. It was diagnosed as something called Churg-Strauss syndrome, which is a very rare form of advanced asthma, I suppose, is one way of putting it. And when I came out of the hospital, a friend of mine said, well, perhaps there's a reason you are sick. You know, there's, that there may be some sort of psychological or something deep inside you that wants to express or wants to get out of your system. And I said, yes, well, perhaps, you know, but just give me the steroids. <laughs> and so he introduced me to a tarot reader. So he spoke very highly of this tarot reader. The tarot reader was just visiting from uh, America. He was actually a German by origin, but he lives in San Francisco. And every year he spends the American winter. He goes and spends it in Australia, which is summer. So he gets summer all the time. And as he passes, he stopped in Japan for one week. And I met this tarot reader. I was very skeptical because, you know, I was trying to analyze everything. And I was, frankly, to use the terminology, I was blown away. There was times I couldn't talk. I couldn't just say anything. I was just dumbfounded. I was thinking, how does this person know so much about me? You know, he knew he was telling me things about my parents. And I said, we've never met. You know, so, And I think that kind of unlocked something in me. And so when I went home, I started to investigate the tarot. How does it work? Why does it work? And who are the best people? Why are they the best people? Then after a few years, as I mentioned earlier, I wrote from my research, the tarot of the revelation. And this is sold quite well. In fact, there's no more. It's sold out, but books still available on the internet. 
And I think that opened something inside me. It's kind of like a key. And then I started thinking in, in these ways. And then I realized, you know, the, the brain is, we often think of it like a machine or a computer, but it is, to me, I think it's more like an antenna, which connects us to the universe. And in the universe, of course, it depends how you term, use the terminology, but there is God. And God is different things to different people. But part of God is this creative spirit, which we're able to tap into. And we're able to download, or <laughs> download's a little bit strange, but we're able to access uh, information. And I think that's how tarot works as well. They're able to connect on a different plane so from studying the tarot, then I thought, well, I want to know more about this. You know, I'm always challenging things. So I uh, started studying Edgar Cayce. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Edgar Cayce. No, I don't know that name. Ah, well, this is somebody you really must know because he uh, is just one of the world's marvels. Bruno Gröning is another one in, in Europe. The, these people are just outstanding. Anyway, Edgar, Edgar Cayce was born in 18... I think 56, he died in 1945-ish. And um, he was what we call sleeping prophet. Hmm. He used to go into a trance and was able to access all parts of this universal, what we call Akashic records, where everything that has happened and may happen is somewhere out in the universe as a kind of... Uh, not sure what the word would be, but it's rather like a, a, a digital memory. It seems strange to say that a person can lie down on a couch and then suddenly know everything about anything, but that is what has happened. Mm -hmm. And he was able to give medical advice to people who were at thousands of miles away. They would write to him and say, you know, I've been suffering X, Y, Z. What should I do? And he would say, you, you need a bit of this, a bit of that. And you should, you know, exercise more or something like this. For example, he, for one person, <laughs> he had given some remedy. Of course, in those days, medicine wasn't as advanced as it is now. The medicine, medical industry didn't start seriously until the Second World War. Before the Second World War, we had very simple medications. So he wrote to this person and said, well, you go to the chemist and ask for this medication X. And he got a letter back from the patient said, well, I went to the chemist and the chemist didn't have it. And so the Edgar Casey he wrote another letter back. He said, no, tell him to look properly. It's, it's on the back shelf in the back of the room. It's on the second shelf. It's on the right hand side. Tell him to go look. <laughs> and there he went and found it. But how does this happen at 3,000 miles difference? Yes. You know, from, from he was based in Virginia Beach and people were writing him from California. How, how did he do this? You know, he ended up writing 14,000 of these. And this is a remarkable person. So I started studying. And he also looked into religious things and political issues and the future of the world. And he looked at climate change. He had dire warnings about climate change. Uh, he said that part of Japan was going to be under the sea very soon. <laughs> Incredible. So, so I went well, to... That's definitely I, somebody I need to uh, look up and learn more about. Edgar Casey is, is remarkable. And I 
enrolled in his university. Uh, he has an online university called Atlantic University. And I studied with them and it was really remarkable. I was, this is a whole new world had been, been shown to me from the kind of scientific and logical thinking. My thinking had to change 180 degrees. Well, and it requires that kind of stimulation, doesn't it? Yes. My guest is Christopher Earnshaw, a real renaissance and broad (laughs) spectrum, if I can use a medical term, broad spectrum (laughs) creative uh, mind. I want to go back to that visual analogy of the brain as an antenna, Mm. you know, rather than this circuitry that we often see, that it's really, you know, that curiosity you spoke of at the outset, that if you put your antenna out, You've described some things in the metaphysical world and, you know, other things that come to you, these ideas and these other thoughts and these other creative inspirations and antenna attracts like sound waves. Yes. Yes. So I found the best way to stimulate this is to study or think about a problem in depth for at least an hour, a maximum of two hours, and then let it go Hmm. and then go for a walk. And then you will find while you're walking, all sorts of ideas pop into your mind. So it's a form of pressure. You pressure your mind thinking about things and writing down questions and uh, trying to see connections between things and then let it go. And then when you let it go, then your brain is able to. It seems that you have a certain form of energy that can only be focused in one direction. But when you release it, that allows for a two-way communication. And all the time, I just had just ideas pop into my mind, particularly at three in the morning for some reason. So I keep- <laughs> That's I keep what it happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, the universe doesn't understand time. <laughs> so uh, of course time doesn't exist, but anyway, so I keep a microphone, um, IC recorder beside my bed so I can record these ideas that come in. Some of them are just mind blowing things that I wasn't even thinking about. And it'll just come in like two words or a sentence or or an image or dreams. Dreams, uh, don't get me started on dreams. Dreams are just so wonderful. I mean, it's just magic. Well, we'll have to we'll have to have another conversation about that. But you know, you're also you know all tongue in cheek aside. I, I kind of continuing our uh, medical analogy here. Yes, side, the side effects of so many creative thoughts coming in <laughs> at one time. You know, we often say, "I just can't turn it off." Sometimes, right? Yes. So the side effect is you get very excited. <laughs> I find I get excited, and I have I get so much energy. When I've got, I'm into a, what really into a project and ideas are flowing and things are popping. I've got mess, uh, making memos all over the place. I'm working something like a 14 hour day. I just miss, I miss lunch. I miss supper. I just work straight through and I just think, oh, I don't need it. You know, I just keep writing because the energy is there. It's, it's sustaining me. It's just so exciting. I love it's it's what the uh, this person's name I cannot pr- pronounce, but uh, book about the zone. It's about being in the zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a uh, Mikkel Chis. I, I know exactly Polish the author name. you're speaking of, and it's as yeah, long as my arm. Yes, she's she's it's a Polish name, and I, I anyway. So yeah. but people know who I'm talking about, and that's true. When you're in the flow, it's like being carried down a river. You know, you don't have time to to, to just go with the flow. It's and because ideas are coming, you don't want it to stop. 
it's just, it's wonderful. Wow. What a terrific conversation, Dr. Earnshaw. <laughs> I've enjoyed it so much. We're going to have to pick it up some other time. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, perhaps in a coffee shop in Tokyo. <laughs> well, Please come. We'll, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> What's the best place our listeners can connect with you and follow your work? Well, I have my website is chris-earnshaw.com. Terrific. And I'm listeners. also on Twitter. I, I'm not a real social. I mean, I have other things to do than tweeting. And, but I do tweet <laughs> at um, author Earnshaw on Twitter. I also have my, for Freemasonry, I have a YouTube channel called Spiritual Freemasonry. I also have a podcast called Freemasonry in Seven Minutes or Less. Well, there you go. All those ideas in seven minutes or less. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> um, well, it's just one, one, one idea. One micro idea at a time. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> Very good. Dr. Chris Earnshaw has been our guest. What a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you for being on the program. Be my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. And listeners, I hope you'll come back for our next episode. We're going to continue our around the world journey to talk to creative practitioners and, and creative thinkers like Chris Earnshaw about how they get inspired, how they organize their ideas, and most of all, how they get the confidence and make the connections to get their work up and out into the world. Because if we only keep to the thoughts and never hit the publish button, they're only thoughts indeed. And we need to put them out into the universe just as other inspiration came to us. I'm sure it will inspire others. So join me on my next episode. Until then, I'm Mark Stinson, and we've been unlocking your world of creativity. See you soon. Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliQ Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and ThePeaceRoom.Love. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer.